Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Geo and Joey show. Today we have a unique episode, but I'm going to let Joey introduce it for us. Joey, how you doing, buddy? Better than I deserve. Amen, brother. Tell the audience exactly what caught your attention and what we're going to listen to and what we're going to review because it stood out to you and I want the audience to know because I think it'll be a fascinating topic. Just for a little background for audience, a couple weeks ago, I was at like a religious camp meeting event and there's something that the speaker said that I think really fits in with the theme of our podcast, right? And so the issue is the biblical story of Israel asking for a king. But the reason why I think, I guess it resonated with me so much is I see certain movements, obviously the left, right? They always want power and they want that ring but i see among like my fellow conservatives sometimes an attitude of we almost we want the power back not so we can restore the constitutional norms that we once had but that we want revenge right or we want power for power's sake or even we have this tendency because our institutions have sometimes been very often been weaponized against us, whether it be the corruption we've seen with the DOJ or with social media companies banning conservatives, that sometimes we can get an overdue trust in men. So for instance, I like Elon Musk as a person. In other words, I think he's doing some good things as a citizen that I'll applaud. But I see sometimes an attitude almost of like, we need him to come in and be our social media czar or we need Trump to, he's our man. What did Trump say? I'm the only one who can fix it. And I just think that flows against the very nature that this country was founded on. That we're a country, not of men, but we're a country of laws. We have a nation without a king and a church without a pope. And I think that's a good thing. I think the liberties that we have here are because of the form of government we have. And then I also like the fact that we can root that belief in scripture because we're a Protestant channel and we want to have a protestant political theology and so i just thought this just goes right along with that. i'd love to share it with our audience and i like the point you make the danger that we see biblically is that the pendulum is going to swing to basically from a theological standpoint legalism and overt trying to control the consciences of men just from a conservative side and we always need to stay balanced introduce the video before i play the first clip and we'll take it from there yeah so this is a speaker for a christian radio program out in california that i think is located in california but it syndicates around the country and i think around the world as well voice of prophecy the speaker's name is sean boonstra and uh, he shares our fondness for the american experiment so i think our fellow conservatives will enjoy that okay let's play it if you're still trying to run your show yourself, you are going to stumble. Now pay attention carefully because the next few verses in 1 Samuel 8 have shaped world history since the moment this happened. It changed everything, including your lives. This is one of the most important stories you need to understand if you want to understand the book of Daniel. Now before we continue to read in 1 Samuel chapter 8, I want to give you a little bit of a history lesson. Maybe let's review 12th grade history. I'm not sure in the United States of America. Let me pause it there for a second. For those in the audience who want to follow along, he is going to be reading from 1 Samuel 8. 
And it's pivotal because it has parallels to the American experiment. And it's only 22 short verses, but I would like you and encourage you to follow along as we discuss this. I was just going to say as well, and he's going to make this point, but I'm just going to say it anyway. The other thing I want to emphasize is actually a point that Dennis Prager made. I'm reading through his Rational Bible Commentary series. And the point that he made is that the most quoted books by our founders, by the American founders, was the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah. This isn't part of the Torah, but this is that oral history, right? Our founders knew this stuff, right? There was a time when Ben Franklin literally got up and recited it. So our founders of our country, they read this stuff. So as you're following along, you can just go right into the history. What grade you cover Reformation history, but it's somewhere there. But you're an educator. When do you do Reformation history? You don't. They don't teach it at his school. <laughs> they do. They do. Let's review it, whatever grade you covered it in. Back in the early 1500s, right after Martin Luther nails his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg, the Reformers begin to think about everything that's transpired over the last 1,000 years or so. And they think all the way back to the 4th century when Christians actually begged the Roman emperor to come in and run the church and be the king. It's an exact parallel. What we did in Christianity is an exact parallel to what Israel did with Samuel, asked for a king. It's exactly what we did. Right after Constantine marches into Rome, 312 AD, he brings an end to the persecution of Diocletian. Boom! Ten-year persecution comes to an abrupt end. Everybody rejoices. And you'd think that things would go well at that point, but down in North Africa, this big controversy emerges. Why? Well, during the persecutions, a whole bunch of clergy ran into the woods to hide. It's known as the Donatist controversy. When the persecution was over, they came back to get their jobs back. And nobody wanted them back. You guys ran in the persecution. We don't want you back. In fact, we're invalidating every baptism you've ever performed. Invalidating. It's a big controversy, and they can't fix it. And somebody says, you know what? The Roman emperor, he's friendly to Christians now. Let's ask him to get involved. And they asked him to get involved. And he was too busy running the empire, so he has his local bishop in Rome run that meeting. And he rises in prominence for the very first time. After that, we have another problem. A renegade priest starts to teach an unbiblical view of the nature of Christ. And again, when the church couldn't solve the issue, they appealed to the Roman emperor. We literally asked the emperor to take over the reins of the church. That's literally what we did. It's like you have a big debate on the floor of the general conference session. I know that's hard to imagine, right? And they can't come to any resolution, so we put in a call to the Oval Office and asked the President of the United States to come in and make the decision for us. It's the same thing. He made a couple of points there that I want to highlight. And without saying so, he's implying that church and state should be separate. Imagine having disputes at church and calling your local mayor to decide that. What's the problem in that, Joey? Let the audience know what the problem is in that. When you go to political, obviously political leaders exist for a reason, but when a political leader renders a decision, like Roman says, they do not bear the sword in vain. So when they start making decisions in regards to these religious conscious issues, the first tablet of the Decalogue, when they start making decisions, religious decisions on those things, there comes the threat of the sword. And what we saw throughout, sadly, throughout much of Christian history 
is a history of persecution and not just by there was first by the pagans first persecuted the christians and that actually leads me into a point i wanted to make about what he was saying is they did this they gave this power away they asked for the king they asked for the emperor to, to rule over them for a good reason they wanted a ruler that would end the persecution they wanted good ends but the thing is good ends do not justify evil means good ends do not justify corrupt means and i think that's a lesson that's certainly applicable we, as conservatives we could apply that to the left and the corruption mm. we're seeing with the biden administration and then merrick garland letting hunter and joe off the hook because he agrees with their politics but at the same time what i would say to our christian nationalist brothers and sisters is they can be doing the same thing they may have good ends in mind in other words we would probably agree with them on many things regarding the last six commandments about getting rid of abortion and stopping the transing of kids and all of these other good ends. But if we embrace an immoral use of power, then that's not justifiable either because no good end justifies an evil means. It's funny you mentioned that because I was reading a quote by Jefferson that he says one of the tyrannies he hates the most is the controlling of the conscience of somebody else. And I'm paraphrasing there. In other words, that's what he fights again. And that's what we should fight for, that everybody should be free to follow the dictates of their own conscience. Now, the last six commandments or those commandments or those things that deal with relationship with each other, we can regulate those, but that doesn't mean in regulating those that we're trying to control. You can think otherwise, that's fine. But if as a consensus, we come to some laws, for example, of not transitioning kids before they're adults, then we have to abide by that and we have to live by that. And yes, we can continue to make persuasive arguments on either side if you feel so inclined, but the majority should rule out when it's the last six commandments. However, the mistake Israel made is that they wanted someone basically to be conscience for them. And that is never a good thing. Totally agree. Let's keep going with the video. And once the emperor sets foot in your church, good luck getting rid of him. Good luck getting rid of him. This new model in Christianity was not at all what Jesus envisioned. We saw it in our scripture reading this morning. He said, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, but not so among you. No king in Christianity. Wasn't supposed to be a king, but we wanted one anyway, just like Israel. We begged for one, and we married church and state. And that marriage of church and state led to more than a thousand years of darkness, complete with torture chambers, where we burned people if they didn't accept our opinion. Everybody following? Getting quiet. We come to the 1300s, about a thousand years after Constantine. God starts to wake people up all over the Western world. All over the Western world. Tyndall, Wycliffe, Huss, Luther, all the reformers. You know the stories well. And what those reformers did was open up the pages of this book, and they started to sort through all kinds of things. You know the things they wrestled with. Sola Scriptura, Sola Fide, the, the, the five solas. And, but underneath all of that, there was a bigger question they were wrestling with. Go back and read the things they wrote. The Reformation was about all kinds of things, but the essence, the heart of the Reformation was an attempt to undo the Roman king. That's what it was. 
So the German princes start to break away, and suddenly up in England, Henry VIII gets an idea. Man, if the German princes can break away, I can break away. And he needs to break away because he wants to change wives, and the Bishop of Rome won't give him an annulment. So he launches his own church, the Church of England. And in England, Bible-believing Christians suddenly get their hopes way up. Oh, we're going to be free. We're going to be able to live by our dictates of our conscience and by the Word of God alone. Didn't pan out that way. Henry's church was built for all the wrong reasons in the beginning, and it ends up worse than Rome. In the 1600s, they're telling British Christians, look, you can believe whatever you want. Whatever you want in your head, just don't live it. When it comes time to worship, we will all do exactly the same thing. We're going to live by the Book of Common Prayer. So there were people in the 1600s in England who wanted to keep the Sabbath, and they were told, you can't do that, not in the Book of Common Prayer. There were people who wanted to be baptized as Jesus was by immersion. Now, you can't do that. It's not in the Book of Common Prayer. There was no freedom in England. And to avoid being jailed, a lot of what we now call the dissenters in England packed their bags and left. They went somewhere else. People like the early Baptists. People like the Barrowists who believe you don't need the state's permission on how to run a church. People like the Fifth Monarchists who read the Book of Daniel and said, look, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, the Fifth Monarch would be Jesus. They were looking forward to the Second Coming of Christ. People like the Puritans and the Quakers and the Sabbatarians and all these people who would eventually pass down their beliefs through the generations to us. God's remnant movement. These are our spiritual grandparents. They started to pack their bags and leave England. Where did they go? I'm, I'm pleased to tell you as a Dutch boy that they went to the Dutch Republic. That's where they went. It's the freest country of the day. And when they got to the Netherlands, they ran into another group that was fleeing persecution, the Jews. So something that jumped out at me while he was talking is just again... So there was a conversation that I was a part of. Those that might be familiar with the Twitter world is someone I follow, Abby Libby. She's pretty big in like the conservative Twitter world. And she tweeted something. There was an especially tense couple of days of Catholics and Protestants on Twitter going back and forth. And she tweeted, I'm so tired of this Catholic Christian infighting. And I just thought, I'm like, I don't know. I kind of like the fact that I can have Catholic friends and other Protestant friends and we can discuss these things. Sometimes it can get a little tense, but nobody's trying to kill each other. And <laughs> Because when we look at this history that Sean's chronicling here, for most of the history, sadly, that's not been the case. Catholics have killed Protestants. Protestants at times have killed Catholics. Even like the early times before our country was founded in the colonies, there was persecution of certain Christians against others. Sir Roger Williams, who we talked about before, ended up getting kicked out of his colony in Massachusetts because of his religious beliefs. In other words, like the religious liberty that we enjoy today, sometimes I think there's a tendency in modernity to take things that we have for granted and not realize where they came from. And so when you see people saying, oh, and this is another thing I see sometimes on the right, there can be a tendency to say, because the left has so much power and it looks hopeless, we say, well, we just got to burn the system down and start over. But it's like, ah, that just, that's not very conservative. <laughs> in other words, we can know that things can always be worse. And we actually do Things are dark right now, but we also, there's a lot of good to conserve still. We can't just burn the whole system down. And that's why, as he will say in a little bit, is that the Constitution is very important and we have to work with it and cannot let what's happening 
and let us forget how important that document it is because it's been the greatest experiment of liberty this world has ever known. And we can't just throw the baby out with the bathwater. Let's continue with the video. They were leaving Spain to get away from the Inquisition and moving to the Netherlands. And so they all get together, these British Protestants and these Jews in the Netherlands. And they begin to compare notes. And for the first time in hundreds of years, Christians begin to read the scriptures in Hebrew because they're learning Hebrew. And they have access to all these super old commentaries. And as they're going through all that material, they stumble together, these two groups, onto this story we're reading today in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 11. This, says God, will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots. You want a king? Okay. But he's going to force you to work for him, and there's going to be military conscription. Is that what you want? Verse 12. He will appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties. He's going to force you to fight his wars. Is that what you want? Verse 14, he will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, and your olive groves and give them to his servants. There's going to be confiscation and eminent domain and taxes to pay, and you will be his servants. The reformers, the British dissenters are reading this, and they suddenly realize, do you think this is the reason we still have trouble with human kings 2,900 years later? Based on this passage, they begin to dream of a world that doesn't have a king. A place where you could live directly beneath God the way God intended for the children of Israel. This was the hottest topic of debate in the 17th and 18th centuries. Whether or not it was okay to get rid of the king. That was it. Everybody was involved. Go back and read William Blake, the poet. He was against it. He said, no, only Lucifer rebels against the authority of a king. Everybody else was pro. Thomas Hobbes. Some of you were forced to read Leviathan in college. They only ever give you two books of the four in Leviathan to read. The other two are on Bible prophecy. They don't want you to read that. Thomas Hobbes talked about it. John Milton was debating it. John Locke hiding in the Netherlands because they accused him of sedition. They, he wrote the Second Treatise of Government, foundation for this nation. John Bunyan in prison for his beliefs, writing Pilgrim's Progress. They're all debating it. We don't think we were ever supposed to have a king in the church. We don't think so. So they began to pray for a place where God would be the king. And let me mention here how he talks about how these people came to realize that they weren't supposed to have a king. And if you ask any Joe Schmo today in America, do you want a king? And they will answer no in the affirmative. They'll be like, no way, no king, no how. Without realizing that they're making kings of political parties. Without realizing that they're making kings of the elite or the people who agree with them. So they're making mob rule a king and not realizing that even in your own party, you should be able to disagree and still be welcomed. But if you disagree with your party line, you get treated as if they were a king and you are a unwily peasant. And so they wouldn't want a direct king, but they're making kings out of political parties and big groups. Yeah, that's such a good point. There was a podcast I was listening to. I forget exactly where I heard this. But the point was made that law can only, like a constitution, a written constitution, can only go so far. In other words, the constitution can only protect you as long as the culture of the people ultimately favors those ideas in this sense. So in other words, I'll just use the Second Amendment, for example, that's part of our Constitution. We can have a Second Amendment in law, but if the people lose 
the idea of the importance and the reason for that and then how it empowers individuals if they lose the reason for that if the culture loses the importance of it then the right can just be taken away right in other words one of my favorite one of my favorite presidents of recent history anyway ronald reagan he one of his famous lines he said freedom liberty is never more than one generation from extinction and but when that cultural attitude no longer wants freedom, it's one of the things that disturbed me the most about 2020 and the COVID lockdown year. There was other times in American history where there's been pandemics that were even worse, more deadly than COVID. And yet the government never attempted to do the style of lockdown that they did because the people wouldn't have tolerated it. There was a spirit of we're free people. You can't tell us we can't worship. And yet... We live in a generation that doesn't appreciate that liberty, and we saw it taken away. In other words, I think mostly we've gotten it back. In other words, I think it was like a warning shot, but that culture has to be there. And so that's what Sean is going through, is how the Protestant reformers, they recovered a culture, right, of liberty. And he's going to go on, he's going to talk about the form of government that Israel had and how it parallels our own, but we got to bring that culture back. And that's what we're trying to do here on the Jerry and Jerry show. Yep. It's about liberty of conscience. And that is so vital to the American experiment. Their passage, Deuteronomy chapter 17. And they realized, and this is the language they were using in the 1700s, 1600s. Israel used to be a republic. In fact, it used to be a constitutional republic. Why? This is what they were saying. It had no king and it had a supreme written law, the Torah. Five books of the Bible. Everybody had to live under the supreme written law and there was no king. But Deuteronomy 17, God knew they would one day ask for a king. And so, because he's a God of love, he puts up a guardrail for the moment we were going to rebel that way. And here's the guardrail. Deuteronomy 17, verse 15. You shall surely set a king over you, whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your brethren. If you're going to have a CEO in this country, then he's got to be a commoner. You may not set a foreigner over you. Can't be foreign-born if he's going to run this country. Verse 17, neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. There were checks and balances put in place in an attempt to prevent corruption. Also it shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and be careful to observe all the words of this law. The king would have to live under the rule of law. Let me ask you a question. Ever heard of a republic where the chief executive officer has to be a commoner and can't be foreign born? Ever heard of anything like that? Ever heard of a republic where there are deliberate checks and balances trying to prevent corruption, where the ruler must be subject, in theory, to the supreme written law of the land, anything on the planet that looks like that? It's not a coincidence that the American Constitution describes a republic without a king. It is not a coincidence that it guarantees religious liberty under a supreme written law. Where do you think the Founding Fathers got those ideas? Every single one of them had been reading the works of the English dissenters. Every single one of them. Now, they weren't all Christians. There were deists and atheists in the bunch, but they knew this stuff. They got the building blocks for the American Constitution directly out of the Protestant Reformation. That's why Ellen White in Volume 5 of the Testimony says that our Constitution is a Protestant and small-r Republican document. 
why she says that. It's because there's this unbroken chain of thought leading directly from the Reformation to the birth of this country. This is the reason the book of Revelation describes this country the way that it does. It says in Revelation 12, the earth would open up and give a per the persecuted a place to go. That's here. Revelation 13 says this brand new nation would be Christ-like, lamb-like. doesn't even have crowns on its horns like the first beast. Why? won't have a king. The founders of this country knew exactly what they were building. And I can prove it. In 1787, at the Constitutional Convention, things were getting out of hand. Everybody's arguing, and they're arguing over states' rights, and we got this close to never, ever being a nation. This close. When suddenly, in the middle of the argument, in the middle of all the heat, Benjamin Franklin stands up, and he makes a speech. First, he quotes the Bible something like 10, 11, 12 times perfectly by memory, because even though he was a deist, he had the entire Bible memorized. He quotes it by memory, and then he says this, before I sit down, I will suggest, Mr. President, not the President of the United States, we're too early for that, President of the Convention, before I sit down, I will suggest, Mr. President, that propriety of nominating and appointing before we separate a chaplain to this convention, whose duty it shall be uniformly to introduce the business of each day by an address to the creator of the universe and the governor of all nations. Who did these people believe was the real king of all nations? Who did these people believe is your only king. If America wasn't going to have a king, it's because the founders knew you already have one and you need to be free to report to him. Up in Newport, Rhode Island, there was a synagogue. Some of the Jewish settlers were panicking. We just created a Christian nation. Now, it wasn't Christian nation. It was a Christian nation, not in the sense that a lot of people use that today where they're pushing for another theocracy. No, it was a Christian nation where you could be free to live by your conscience under Jesus. But they panicked because... I like the point he makes there because it is Christian principles, but it's not a theocracy. And the beauty of Christianity is that you are free to choose whether you're going to follow Jesus or not. Yet the founding principles of society found in Scripture are for the benefit of everybody, not just Christians. So if everybody would follow it, we would have a kumbaya society. Unfortunately, people like to rebel, and that's why it doesn't always go as smoothly as possible. And not only people outside the church, but people within the church like to rebel as well. The biggest problem with theocracy when you don't have God, right, coming down in a cloud of fire by, or a cloud of, a cloud by day and a, and, fire, and a pillar of fire by night, when you don't have the actual Shekinah glory in the temple directing you what to do, the problem with theocracy outside of that Israeli context is when someone claims to speak for God, generally I've got a problem with that. A lot of wacky things have been said by people claiming to speak on behalf of God. But what we see, and I want to expand this even further, because I think this idea, it, I think it should be the core of, and I think it was historically the core of Protestant political theology, but it goes even further. In other words, think about what happened in heaven, the war of ideas that happened there. God's an all-powerful being. In other words, the reason why I know the war wasn't physical is because God could think and Lucifer wouldn't exist anymore. But he did it. He allowed Lucifer to make his arguments, right? He allowed him to convince other people. He allowed the angels in heaven to have the freedom of conscience to choose to worship him or not. And when that expanded here, 
He extended that freedom of content. In other words, what makes us unique? There's two things I believe that make us the image of God. One is our ability to procreate, to interact with God in the creation of the species. That's one thing. But the other is our consciousness. The fact that we have free will and we can make decisions, that's part of the image of God in us. So when we try to compel others' consciences, what we're trying to, what we're really doing is we're denying the Imago Dei. We're saying, you're not fully human. And so it's just, it should go against everything that we stand for, certainly as Christians, and I would argue as American patriots, to violate conscience in that way. Whether it's because someone doesn't want to get a vaccine that they don't believe in, or whether it's because they choose they don't want to worship. They say, hey, I don't want to do this God thing. God says, listen, you're free to do that. I love you. I died for you. You don't have to do this. But at the end of the day, he's going to leave that decision on worship up to you. And that's such a vital point. And that's what here in the Gio and Joey show we're trying to do. Look, deciding how to navigate this is not simple. The Bible gives us the principles and nature gives us principles as well. But there's a healthy tension and there's a healthy balance that you always have to carry out. But it can be done where we respect the rights and the liberties of everybody else while living harmonious as a nation. But what's happening is that two sides are tearing themselves apart and it keeps swinging left and right eventually it's going to swing hard right and Gio and Joey will be there to defend those on the left as well but we have to stay not in the middle but we have to stay centered on truth there is no middle there's only the left or the right or the truth and the truth will set you free and that freedom is only found in Christ Joey I'll give you the last word as we wrap up what I would want to close on is these ideas that he's talking about, this is our heritage as Americans. And then I would certainly say to, our, to the rest of our Protestant brothers and sisters, as Protestant Christians, this is our heritage. And I know that there has been a dearth of both biblical literacy in our churches and in our schools and among our populace and of historical literacy. We're forgetting some of these waymarks. That author that Sean mentioned, Mrs. White, she actually says, right, that the only thing we have to fear is that we forget our history and the Lord's leading. We forget history and the Lord's leading in our past. I'm butchering that quote. Let me say it for you. There's nothing to fear for the future unless we forget how the Lord has led us in the past. Amen. (laughs) And so I just think we need to be in these. Read, first of all, read the Bible tonight or whenever you watch this podcast, when you're done, Turn it off. Go read 1 Samuel 8. Read God's warning to the Israelites about what would happen if they if they insist on a king. Read the history of First and Second Kings, particularly the reign of Manasseh, and see the horrible things that happened under the reign of kings to God's chosen people. Read that. Then go to the history. Read the writings of our founders. Read the Federalist Papers. In other words, Our Constitution and Declaration was the result of serious thinkers. Many of them were Christians, a good plurality of them were deists, and a few of them were atheists. But all of them knew history and knew scripture, even the atheists and the deists. So read those writings, 
go in your Bible and let's stand for truth. What's the old Superman line? Truth, justice, and the American way. It's the right thing to do. Yes. And look, let's end with this. I love that quote, John Adams, about that the Constitution was written for who? End with that, and then I'll close this. A moral and religious people, and is wholly inadequate for the governance of any other. In other words, we have to have moral principles for this American experiment to continue to thrive for everybody. Not just for the left, not just for the right, but for everybody. Until then, get in your word, study the history. We don't want to repeat the mistakes of the past, and we'll catch you on the next episode. Take care.